Hello and welcome back to Beyond Survival, the new teacher podcast. My name is Jamie Tom. So three years ago this week, my book, Teacher Resilience, Managing Stress and Anxiety to Thrive in the Classroom, came out. So what I thought I would do this week is is just share part of one of the chapters, which is about teacher self-talk. And I want to look at it through the lens of really challenging negative self-talk. And I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. Again, just to acknowledge it's it's November. um, It's a tough, tough month for teachers to get through. And just partly to just recognise, I think, there's something that teachers are really prone to doing, as I'll explain in this excerpt. So I hope it's useful um, for you at this stage in the term. So every day in school, we experience highs and lows, all of which have a similar emotional impact at the time. Yet which are the moments that we ruminate on? How often do memories of real pleasure and joy fade as we turn over the challenging or negative moments in our minds? At the close of each day, do we more often judge ourselves for our failures than our achievements? Falling into this trap of obsessive reflection on our weaknesses serves only to intensify feelings of anxiety and stress. It ultimately increases the fear we feel and leaves us feeling pessimistic about our own abilities. Not only that, it makes us threat conscious. It makes us fearful. As the Greek philosopher Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher, wrote, men are disturbed not by events, but by their opinion about events. So this inclination towards the negative can be explained by the way that our brains are wired. If we understand our natural tendencies, we can work to make space for reflections that give us momentum, passion and joy. In cognitive science, this dominance of the negative over the positive has a delightfully obvious title. The negativity bias. And we can thank our cave-dwelling ancestors for this, excuse me, inclination towards pessimism. According to psychologists, we are predisposed to be alert to aspects of our environments that could harm us. It makes perfect sense. If our ancestors had stopped to dreamily ponder the beauty of a flower just as a predator spotted them, the consequences would have been dire. But although our sensitivity to threat was remarkably helpful at that time, These days, our systems are overstimulated by the huge number of threats that surround us. So, amongst other things, the negativity bias explains why we do the following. We fixate on negative comments and feedback rather than the positive. We respond both physically and emotionally to adverse stimuli. We forget pleasant experiences quickly, but continue to recall challenging experiences and traumatic events. We channel our attention towards the negative rather than the positive information. For teachers, this fixation on the negative can lead to a hugely dissatisfying professional experience. We feel inadequate as we focus on the negative aspects of our lessons, which in themselves are inevitable. We find it hard to accept and act on constructive feedback, 
And our negativity bias can even influence how we, well we build relationships with our colleagues. Our ways of thinking and working become less collegiate and more individualized. As we shall see, the tunnel vision thinking is the enemy of resilience and more human connection is really what we need. So what can we do about this negativity bias and how can we stop its persistent pull? The first thing is self-compassion. So compassion is a term we're familiar with. The psychologist Paul Gilbert, who's the founder of the Compassionate Mind Foundation, defines compassion as a sensitivity to suffering in self and others with a commitment to try to alleviate and prevent it. As teachers, compassion is absolutely central to what we practice. We strive to behave in a compassionate way towards young people and towards our colleagues. We're conscious of doing all we can to be patient, to be caring, to be supportive of those around us. And although we behave compassionately towards others in our work in schools, the notion of self-compassion is much more alien. And the reality is that self-compassion is often much harder to practice. But ultimately, we need to be committed to alleviating and preventing our own suffering as much as we are to that of others. So when I was first introduced to this idea of self-compassion, I was a little bit sceptical about it. I was pretty much married to my negative inner monologue. When things didn't work out how I wanted them to, I'd give myself an inner Muhammad Ali-style beating. Even my running habit led to inner pummelings when I was literally not up to speed. I imagined that self-compassion would involve giving myself some kind of elaborate self-cuddle or writing myself a soppy love letter. And I thought that embracing self-compassion would signal the end of my drive, my motivation, and instead it would let me drift through the world on a delicate cloud of ambivalence. I questioned if the friends I grew up with in the Highlands of Scotland all stereotypes of a long-haired, kilt-wearing, caber-tossing, sheep-wrestling chap are, of course, correct, would scoff and lack of ma- at my lack of masculinity. But, of course, like everything, there's a balance to be found. The reality is that self-compassion isn't about rejecting responsibility or wallowing in self-pity. Instead, for me, it's about treating ourselves with the same kindness that we would like to show others. And that's an easy sentence for me to write and to speak on this podcast, but the sentiment is much harder to live out because most of us have been trained in this inner monologue from childhood. And like any habit, it's really difficult to break. I interviewed Paul Gilbert, (coughs) excuse me, for a previous podcast I ran, which is called The Well Teacher, and I'll link it to the notes on this podcast. And he said, developing compassion for ourselves makes us more self-aware. So this is his quotation. When we're compassionate to ourselves, we're able to acknowledge these understandable reactions. And rather than push them away or stop feeling what is genuinely within us, learn how to tolerate, bear and manage them without ruminating on or amplifying them. 
Now, I think for teachers whose emotional radar is incredibly important to building relationships and supporting learning, this description of working with negative emotions is really, really helpful. So how do we put this practice of self-compassion into place? The first part I'm going to talk about is reframing situations. Now, there's never going to be a day in which things go perfectly in a school. There will always be challenges to deal with, difficult conversations and plans that go awry. And mistakes will be made. And our internal bias means that our internal monologue often sounds something like this. That lesson was a complete disaster. Why won't they behave for me? I'm never going to pass this observation. Why do all my students hate me? I'm such an idiot. Other teachers are so much better than me and I can't cope. The unfortunate thing is these phrases can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Confidence in the classroom is such a fragile thing. And young people can see when we have lost it. So how do we challenge these repetitive thought patterns? The first thing we can do is recognize them. So track your thoughts throughout the day and consider any patterns or phrases that come up repeatedly. What tone do you take in your inner inner self-talk? Which words do you use frequently? Is self-judgment the most obvious force in your internal dialogue? And could this be replaced with self-kindness? And this process requires a degree of objectivity. Don't fall into the trap of judging your thinking, but just watch it. The second is to soften that inner voice. And to ask yourself an important question. Would you speak to a friend or family member in the way you are speaking to yourself? If the answer is no, it's important to ask yourself why. We need to accept the emotions that we're feeling, not fight against them or ruminate painfully upon them. The thought is out of our control. And this detachment can help us from emotionally investing in negative thought patterns and giving too much weight to those thoughts. Repetitive practice is the next stage. So this is a real challenge. And remember, your brain has been programmed to have negative thoughts on a loop. Every time the tendency arrives to perceive a situation negatively, counter it by offering an alternative phrase or a statement that works for you. One I've found really, really beneficial in my own life is just asking the question, is this helpful? And more often than not, the answer is no. Another thing that really helps, and it helps me, because I'm obviously, I take things quite seriously in lots of different ways, is using humour as a tool. So when we experience high levels of stress and anxiety, sometimes, sometimes everything suddenly becomes very, very serious. It can be difficult to detach ourselves from the situation. In 1930, the philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote the following. One of the symptoms of approaching nervous breakdown is the belief that one's work is terribly important. Humour is one of the best tools you can deploy to avoid this trap because it helps us to take ourselves less seriously. During the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln suffered awfully. His generals flared him, sometimes miserably. His 11-year-old son died. And after a terrible setback, 
at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862, he wrote, If there is a place worse than hell, I'm in it. Yet despite all this, Lincoln would spend evenings regaling guests to White House with jokes and stories. He referred to laughter as the joyful, beautiful, universal evergreen of life. In the amazing book, Team of Rivals, which is an exploration of Lincoln's presidency, and the book that Barack Obama said he couldn't be without during his own presidency, Doris Cairns Goodwin highlights Lincoln's immense strength. Lincoln was as calm and as unruffled as the summer sea in moments of the gravest peril. She goes on to highlight that this is in part about being able to adapt to negative feelings not trying to escape them. Mental health contemporary psychiatrists tell us consists of the ability to adapt to the inevitable stresses and misfortunes of life. It doesn't mean freedom from anxiety and depression, but only the ability to cope with these afflictions in a healthy way. So humour can help us to take our internal negativity and drive perfection a little bit less seriously, and we can smile at some how ludicrous some of our own internal reflections are. And it's really, to be honest, the easiest to apply out of all the forms of self-compassion. Another thing you can do is a positive negative charter. So on a piece of paper, draw two columns. In the first column, write down all the negative perceptions of yourself that you are repeating in your mind. In the second column, come up with a counter to each of those perceptions. And this can be a really helpful visual reminder of all your positive qualities and it helps to overwrite the negative perceptions with a positive reality and trains you to be more optimistic. Another thing is compassionate self-talk and that's about using positive language to communicate with ourselves and there's a balance to be found. We need to acknowledge and take responsibility for errors and mistakes but also realise the important thing is to learn from them. So, Dr. Christian Neff, who's got brilliant stuff on self-compassion. She's written, with the burnout issues teachers face, taking care of themselves through work-life balance is important, but it isn't enough. Teachers need to give themselves permission to be self-compassionate for the stress they're under. And writing can really help with this. Writing a journal, for example, challenges us to alter how we're thinking and can allow us to become more emotionally detached. Or working with a coach can also make that detachment easier because verbally expressing how we feel allows us to gain more perspective. That phrase, it's good to talk, exists for a reason. Another useful thing to do is just to think of times in the past where you've demonstrated real resilience and in which you've overcome adversity and overcome stress because thinking about then can help you to mirror some of those qualities in the future. Another brilliant phrase to ask and apply in stressful situations is just, this will pass. And all things are fleeting, no matter how stressful and disastrous they may feel at the time. And trying to imagine a future where this stressful moment will not matter so much can help to reduce the intensity of the distress. A couple of questions you can ask yourself. How will I feel when I reflect back on this? And will this matter in a few years' time? Taking this long view 
can help us to perceive a situation in a clearer and less emotional way and encourages us to see it as a learning opportunity. And sometimes even naming the voice that tries so hard to put a negative spin on daily events can help us detach further. So giving that internal voice a a bit of a name, anything at all, uh, anxious Andrea might be one that you could apply, for example. So sometimes we have to step off that treadmill of perfectionism that's so often promoted by social media and by society. Everybody makes mistakes and perfection is impossible. And just reminding ourselves of this fact can really, really help. So it's not about looking through life with rose-tinted glasses. Instead, we need to learn to accept our feeling, not fight against it. And when we do this, the harsh self-judgment or the harsh self-talk begins to be quieted. So that's a little extract, as I said, from um, a book I wrote three years ago called Teacher Resilience. And I hope it's been helpful. And I'm sorry I've gone a little bit over time today with that. But I hope that's been helpful in just giving some ideas of how you can keep positive and how you can challenge some of that negative self-talk that we all engage in as human beings. So thank you so much for listening. Please do pass that on if it's been helpful. And I hope uh, the rest of your week is a really positive one, a positive one both externally and internally. Thank you so much.